Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm really excited uh, today uh, to talk to a fellow psychologist, uh, Dr. Kurt Schneider, one of the leading psychologists in existential and humanistic psychology, um, offering the field a vision for what we need to do given the kind of crises in society and trying to take a leadership role, um, potentially being our next APA president. Um, I've enjoyed your many books uh, and uh, I find you to be an inspiration for a way psychology might be going forward. So welcome, Kirk. Thanks so much, Craig. I know, it's really- It's wonderful to be here with you. you hey man, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, and uh, I really, you know, uh, I look forward to kind of us uh, cross-talking in relationship to what psychology has been, what it might be, uh, what it could be um, going forward. And uh, what I'd like to do though, is just start, uh, as we mentioned, as before I hit the thing, we're both clinicians. Uh, so we often uh, look at the narrative arc of somebody's life and to orient us to understanding them. Um, as a function of that, can you just share with the audience a little bit about your background and story and whatever feels kind of relevant to shaping you uh, into the life you ended up leading? Well, I was really born into psychology, Greg. Uh, <laughs> I mean, literally, uh, my father was a humanistic educator. Mm. He was a high school teacher at the time, middle school teacher, and he eventually uh -huh. became a professor of education. And I was immersed in articles and books by Carl Rogers, oh, wow. Abraham Maslow, Rollo May. Uh -huh. Frank Barron, mm. uh, you name it, E. Paul Torrance. I mean, wow. I did, had his fingers on a lot of these works because right. he did his dissertation on uh, creativity in kids. Huh. And it was very much a freedom to learn sort of perspective and right. uh, you know, deep oh. exploration into our capacity to be more than our conditioning often. Right, of course. So. Uh, I had that background. My mother was quite unique also, and both mm. of them, unfortunately, have passed away. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother just passed away at 90. Uh, my dad, wow. uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm -hmm. about 40 years ago. But um, my, my mother uh, became a, she was a fashion designer, and then she became a radio and television spokesperson mm. in the Cleveland area. And she, she did, uh, she was the leading spokesperson for the uh, Cleveland Illuminating Company. Huh. And she was, interestingly, uh, uh, very attuned to psychology. Huh. Very That's uh, fascinating. thoughtful, uh, introspective in her way, concerned about uh, development. Huh. And... We all suffered the very tragic loss of my brother mm. when I was two and a half and he was seven. Oh, gosh. So as you might imagine, that was a shattering in our whole family. Right. So he, got, he got a rare disease. Is the, did I see that? A rare disease, uh, chickenpox and pneumonia attacked him. Uh, and uh, I mean, they took him to Brigham and Women's. I mean, they mm -hmm, did everything mm -hmm. they could. Sure months or weeks in any case uh had a huge impact uh, on my mother of course of course i've only come to appreciate more in my later years but she mm. went into psychoanalysis mm. which is quite interesting unusual again for we were a middle class family we lived mm -hmm. in a 
a working class uh, part mm -hmm. of Cleveland. Okay. That was another kind of, I think, important piece of my development. We were the only Jewish family mm. in a Christian neighborhood. It was mainly right. uh, Italian, German, and uh, Catholic. Actually. Yep. Mm -hmm. So my parents were, were sort of mavericks in that way. It sounds like it. But, but so my mother in psychoanalysis, and then I went through uh, a great deal of turmoil. Uh, I started hitting uh, three, four. Mm. Uh, I, I had uh, enormous anxiety, uh, mm. rage, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. all kinds of emotions. Uh, mm came up for me, of course, a lot around bewilderment and, and terror. Right, right. Of the, the, the whole death and what does that mean? I, I almost, I tell people, I almost feel like I went through my midlife crisis at three. <laughs> Man. This, wow, this that's big question about life came up for me in a huge uh, way. Oh, wow, yeah. My mother had the wherewithal to refer me to a psychoanalyst that her analyst knew, child analyst. Hmm. And that, and uh, later on when I was in graduate school, were probably the, the two most important therapeutic contacts I had in my wow. life. Okay. Uh, they, they were life turning, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. probably uh, saving, because mm. uh, I was in such bad shape at a point that my father was actually taking notes on me and mm. confirmed uh, that I was lost. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Night terrors and fears of mm. monsters and so on and just right, right. in any case um that that steady seasoned presence of this uh, middle-aged analyst mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i still remember but uh more in terms of that sort of physiognomy that his mm. presence i don't remember a thing he said to me mm. and i don't think we did play therapy i was about okay. five right all time. right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but uh he he treated me and respected me as a, as a person <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I think he would ask why questions at times, but but mainly uh, would conveyed a sense of solidity. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. It was difficult to find in my family system, right? Time, right. Understandably, uh, mm -hmm. because of, of all the the jarring. Right. Of course. So it sounded like he became a stable object. Uh, you know, a secure, stable object and presence that you were able to then internalize and give you some attachment foundation to gain some, you know, resonance around that, you know, relative to the chaos your system is going through. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the stability, the presence, uh, extremely uh, core. And anyway, through that experience, I, I moved from what I would call a position of, of abject terror and, and paralysis in many ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to gradual intrigue mm. about my situation and ability to, to inquire about it, uh, to uh, play, uh, play, play games, or uh, I, I had a whole stable of actors and actresses mm -hmm. and, and plays that I was sort of working with as a kid. Right. Uh, I was working out my own issues mm -hmm. um, and it eventually became fascinated by science fiction and in those days there were great uh, television shows uh, right the outer limits one step beyond 
about the paranormal right and, uh, and twilight zone so cool huh. interesting. maybe unusual but i i found a, a great solace even though i was also a little distressed by those shows <laughs> i really related to mm. you know, mm -hmm. peculiar states of mind and places right. people etc right that's a really interesting point though the abject terror to curiosity shift in fact i i yes. look for that all the time psychotherapy to see openings where the frame from oh my god reject escape overwhelm to what is this and what is it doing and what am i doing you know that's a very if you can help make that shift it's a pretty fundamental one in terms of how people absolutely. orient to their experience absolutely in fact i see it as uh key to uh, an existential depth-oriented mm. engagement where people move gradually often from sure. error to the beginnings of wonder mm. and then back to terror often because <laughs> something happens in their lives sure with the therapist a, a rupture yep and it puts puts us back in but then if you've got that deeply present, concerned uh, healer with you. Um, you can often feel disarmed enough, uh, you know, enough of a base to move back into to the risk-taking. Right. Doing that psychically as well as behaviorally. Right. And so I, I think I did that with my therapist to some degree, uh -huh. I was able to take more risks in that relationship. Mm but also in the outside world. And I, I found a relative stability. Um, I did have challenges in school for a while, uh -huh. but I really blossomed by the time I got to college and graduate school. Hmm. And uh, thankfully- were you, were, you, <laughs> were you on the path of psychology sort of the whole time? Or yes, did that's yeah. the other thing. I, I guess I'm one of those rare people. I knew what I wanted to do. Actually, that's me too. I did that in, in by high school, at least I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah, me too. Kind of my trajectory since I was a kid was toward mm. psychology, writing, creative writing, especially, mm. but philosophy. But I, I found mm -hmm. that psychology put it put it all together for me. It was a chance mm. to make a living. Mm -hmm. Also explore, engage my fascination with uh with people, with uh, human experience and behavior, and to write. So mm. it put so many of these things together. And I had a wonderful intro psych teacher, yeah. first mm -hmm. year of college. And, and boy, there's nothing like that, because it went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> he, he applied it to contemporary uh -huh. issues and our own right. lives. And, and then it got, uh, I thought, a little I don't know, dull. It, it, it could have been so much richer, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. but, but then by the time I got to graduate school and I went to pretty unique, I graduated Ohio State and I okay. went to a unique uh, graduate school uh, called the State University of West Georgia. Mm. So yep. Way out in the hinterlands of uh, Georgia, an hour huh. and a half from Atlanta. And it was, it was the protégés of Abe Maslow. Yeah, wow. Decided okay. to start the school. 10 years before I started in 68. Huh. Okay. And it was a fascinating place, a, a kind of exotic place in the, mm -hmm. the middle of, you know, kind of uh, 
well, definitely bucolic and a little redneckish. Yeah, yeah. But the well, people I... were cool. They they put uh -huh. up with the psych department. <laughs> um, and you know, we'd have some great meals together at the local a diner. It was at a, right. a woman's house. Mm. <laughs> but I I suffered. Um, I had a, a, a real uh, anxiety, uh, a kind of a breakdown. Mm -hmm. uh, in graduate first, school. Uh -huh. First few months in, yeah. I think it was, it was a combination of things. Um, my father had just visited. He brought his girlfriend who was a year older than me. Ah. And, um, you know, that, that, I mean, mm -hmm. I thought cognitively that's okay if you, you know, and I, I deeply love my dad. And right, right. I liked her too. Mm -hmm. But um, I think maybe issues of the divorce, which when I was a kid, they, they did divorce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that converged with uh, this film that I saw, that we all saw one night uh, huh. called Magic. Okay. <laughs> it was an Anthony Hopkins film about a mm -hmm. deranged ventriloquist. Uh -huh. Lord knows why that upset me, but it was again a converging events. And my a revered uh, professor of, of uh, psychoanalysis and phenomenology uh -huh. uh, gently challenged me to work at the local mental hospital, huh. and I took that as a real uh, kind of pressure uh. to to do this. And I was uh -huh. twenty. Just turned 22, so I was okay. right. vulnerable age. I was mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of miles from home mm. in a very unusual place, right. uh, away from my girlfriend. Mm. Uh, but mm. this convergence of events uh, led to uh, a kind of reactivation, mm. I believe, very yeah. early. Right. Trauma, very early helplessness. Sort of recovery of that old state of mind, huh? I think so. And um, I instinctively, my, my dad couldn't help. Uh, his partner could, could not help. I instinctively called a peer who was blind. Interesting. I think of Tiresias, you know. Not the artist of Repentance. Oedipus. Right, of, right, right. Oedipus cycle. And uh, she, I just intuitively sensed that she could connect. And, and mm. she came over and she did mm -hmm. connect. And she said a phrase that I know is considered a, a little bit of a, maybe a, a trite phrase today, but it was very powerful for me. And that is, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. I was shaking. I was physically shaking. I right. was very anxious. I had panic attacks. This too shall pass. And she gave me the name and the number of an analyst, an mm -hmm. existential analyst mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. town. Very mm -hmm. extraordinary person whom I then engaged with for the next nine, ten months. Okay. Mm -hmm. I took him there. And that was, I would say, the most important therapeutic experience in my life. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. woman had a rock solid presence, mm. uh, had a great, a very strong feeling of her mm -hmm. connecting with where I was and being interested. Mm. 
curious and serious about where right. I was. Mm -hmm. And again, the biggest lesson coming out of that work for me was uh, the uh, imp imp imperative need to stay with whatever was coming up for me. Right. Wherever I was. So again, presence. Right. Being able to stay with, with my whole body experience and not just something to figure out, understand yep. intellectually or to behave differently. I mean, we certainly did engage at, at some of those levels, mm -hmm. which was very helpful in helping me understand a lot about my family system, my mother mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. It helped me a great deal with perspective. And this is part of my integrating connection too right but the biggest piece for me and the deepest healing was being able to literally and figuratively reoccupy parts of myself that were blocked off right and that were like like those uh secret closets you know yep. totally those terrifying places right and right. so that's a lot of what we did in the mm. office and then mm -hmm. i was able to take that out into the world and uh, I gradually came, overcame a number of the symptoms that I had. And uh, it's been with me ever since. I mean, we're talking right. 40, almost 40 years. Right. So we're 40 years. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it seems to me, I'll, I'll offer a basic framework that I operate from in, in sort, of the, sort of the principles of the work of psychotherapy and what it is that sort of at the core of the healing and see if this resonates. I think it sounds like it, it resonates. So I, I think that people get trapped in intrapsychic and interpersonal cycles um, where they can't metabolize various forces that are inside of them. Uh, and then they develop defenses against those and then they try to compensate and escape and repress. And that creates sort of, at least if we're that, talking about the inside of an individual, just a, a, a real fragmented, um, structure that's got a lot of energy blocking. And I mean that sort of metaphorically, but actually I think there's also <laughs> maybe more than just metaphor there. Um, and, and so then what I, I look for then is sort of, at least within the individual, sort of a developmental, knowing their history, line that affords then vertical integration in the synchronic moment. So there's a diachronic development and then the synchronic across the levels of the body um, into the heart into the rational mind and then into the spirit in relation. Uh, and so the body is basically the physiological interoception framing of the gut, the appetites, pleasure and pain, uh, the, the place in relationship that's sort of the core animalistic way of being in the world. Um, the heart is sort of your primate socio-emotional attachment structure, the need to be known and valued, the fear of abandonment and core rejection and, uh, sort of intuition and pride and shame and love and hate and, and all of that. And then you have your justifying kind of narrating, oh my God, what's happened to me and why? And what's the implications of this? How are people going to see me? And, um, you know, what does this actually mean in some sort of rational egoic sort of way? And then ultimately sort of a, a spiritual potential transcendent of a purpose of uh, notions of connection to the cosmos and other kinds of uh, sort of potential transcendent ideologies that then give uh, meaning or not. Um, and so that's, the, that's what I call the vertical stack. 
And I see what I see in a lot of individuals then is, is sort of breakdowns in the coherent integrative flow between that. Um, and so then as you transition from body into heart or heart into mind or mind into spirit, you get um, systems saying, fuck that. I, <laughs> I don't want any of that. You know, so then you get blocking and defense and all this other stuff. And then the fundamental question is, uh, can you bring presence? Uh, can you bring attention? Um, and then how is sort of in a loving, healing context, bring curiosity, what I call calm MO, curiosity, acceptance, loving compassion, and then a motivated, a healthy motivation toward valued states of being. Um, and then that tries to then afford that light, as it were, that relational light, conscious light, tries to afford a coherent integration um, to bring right relationship between these various uh, layers. How does that jive with your sense? Well, it very much jives. I mean, I, I might not use the same words that you use, but I appreciate the words you're using. Uh, what comes to my mind is freedom. It's freedom summarizes my own experience uh -huh. and, and those of, of many of my clients uh, in the sense of through the work, developing a, an increasing capacity to uh, roam within and without. Uh, right. Thoughts, feelings, body sensations, imaginings, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. Um, as that dilates, uh, ah, as the capacity word. grows. Right. And with, again, with one's whole body experience, one feels less, I feel less alien right. from these parts, these the actual cells, as van der Kolk has. Yeah, and, uh, and, and internal family systems or whatever. There are a lot of, you know, different sub, sub, whether you do sub parts or whatever. Clearly, there are all these different voices and forces, right? <laughs> Lately, I got to tell you, Greg, I'm, I'm a born again Rockian. Ah, okay. Worst <laughs> in Ronk's work of late. Uh, uh -huh. I, I really see that powerful thread between mm. Ronk and Becker and terror management theory and. Okay a broader existential humanistic integrative view. But going back to the, the trauma of birth, uh, something we all experience, the move from relative quiescence and non-existence to sudden buzzing, blooming, confusing existence, right? It's a pretty dramatic shift. Boring. <laughs> yes, so it happens right from the birth of consciousness. Right. And I wouldn't necessarily call it the trauma of birth, but the, certainly the drama of birth. Because certainly I think the drama. I love that. Yeah. Wonder, mm -hmm. Wondrous elements as well. But so it's it's a lot about integrating that template uh, yep. that either gets exacerbated through family system approaches and cultural system approaches, or is is more held and supported. Uh, for a person's capacity to, um, you know, come into the more of who they are, right. to experience exactly. freedom. Yes. So the freedom uh, is very powerful. And I think without freedom, it's really hard to get to those later stages mm. you're talking about, especially inner freedom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I, I associated with the sense of awe, which mm. has also been a very 
significant theme for me. And right. And a wonderful book I might plug, A Spirituality of Awe at the level of the kind of orientation, the, the cognitive, emotional, relational world orientation. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Well, it's the humility and wonder or sense of adventure toward living. Right. But in order to experience that, one needs to be able to feel and sense and think as freely and deeply as possible, it seems right, to me. Right. Yes. Or as concertedly as possible. And, uh, and, and also, uh, that means being aware of one's limits and vulnerabilities. Right. <laughs> which totally. which I, I believe are integral to a, a flourishing individual and cultural uh, collective. Totally. Right. Well, that's, a, that's part of the, uh, part of the openness is authenticity and honesty with what is. <laughs> yes. Definitely, definitely. And, and it's, it's critical to wisdom, it seems to me, Absolutely. to the degree we can understand what, what that is. Right, but right. You gave yeah. a very eloquent description of it and in your, your work, your writings as well. Mm. And uh, I, I just really appreciate that, that the path that you're on with it, mm. the holistic uh, frame that you're bringing to it. Mm -hmm. We need translations of this more holistic frame uh, for our field, it seems to me. Totally. And we have so many riches to bring mm -hmm. to bear in psychology as a whole. But um, our problem, as it's been for a long time, is compartmentalization. <laughs> we get stuck in our little boxes and we can't see the forest, you know? Right. Well. And then uh, it's, that's a great and imperative forest to broach. Uh, well, I mean, certainly uh, all I can say is my cells are naughty. <laughs> so that uh, totally, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, the, the uh, you know, as people know, this podcast, no, I, I entered into psychotherapy. I've been, uh, you know, pretty much trained by the undergrad. I had a lot of really good undergraduate professors, but I essentially bought the empiricist mode, sort of not gather accurate knowledge and then we'll figure out the right things to do. I sort of would bring an egoic cognitive rationalism. I like Bandura. I like the yeah. scientific method. I was really impressed with all of our knowledge in relationship to that and sort of kind of came in and be like, yeah, people are kind of confused and, but we can, we can bring technologies of understanding that afford them, you know, right ways of, of living. Uh, so that's that kind of CBT engineering kind of frame of reference. Um, and, uh, and I certainly think it has value, um, but ultimately it has all the errors of what I would call now um, the errors of modernity in many ways also. Uh, mm -hmm. So it has the power of empiricism um, and rationality, but at the same time, what is heart, what is art, <laughs> you know, yeah. what is awe, uh, and uh, what's relation, uh, th all of those kinds of things. Not that it completely dismisses, but it undervalues and, and overvalues procedure, instrumentality, reductive analysis of, you know, outcome in particular kinds of ways. And it failed to afford exactly the necessity of a holding environment that appreciated a broad philosophy that upgraded our understanding of our natures. Because I think that the modernist worldview, at least as it sort of like gets translated as, well, it's just physical matter you know, you're bouncing around really, and you can bullshit it if you want, but you know, that's basically what we are. It's like, oh my God, no, that's not really, <laughs> right, right. that's not right. <laughs> well, so. I mean, as, as I view it, 
it's a map territory problem too. Mm -hmm. Right. We've got these, these wonderful, well-calculated maps of what is going on for the individual, even at the level of awe, because mm -hmm. there's more and more research on that, mm -hmm. a lot of experimental research, but, but there actually is a lot of qualitative research that needs to be tapped into more. Mm. But, um, but also in neuropsychology, you know, we're mapping mm -hmm. out the neurocircuitry uh, very eloquently. Um, we, we're mapping out the therapeutic process mm -hmm. in so many ways with protocols, um, manuals, et cetera. But again, you know, is, is the map of a, uh, a sort of, uh, what's the word, mechanically correct therapist, let's say, who's saying the, the right things based on aggregate data yep. to this individual, mm -hmm. um, the same as experiencing right. therapist and a therapist experiencing a client in that moment, that given client in that given moment, bring to bear the clinical knowledge that they have and the intuition that they have. Totally. Uh, you know, is the neurocircuitry of awe, and believe it or not, they have a, an awe circuitry at this point. <laughs> okay. They have a God. Right. Uh, uh, I've seen some of that. I is that the same as one's experience of awe of or God, let's say, right. if you believe? Um, no, we, we've, there, there's a distance. And uh, even though there's activation in the brain that supposedly is the same uh, when, let's say, somebody is walking mm -hmm. in beautiful nature through mm -hmm. the woods. Right. Well, the activations in the, uh, you know, firings of the neurons, et cetera, are supposedly the same or very similar as they are when somebody is in a uh, virtual reality uh, device mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and doing the same thing. But I, I think we really need to question this, Greg. We, we need to look much more closely. Is it the same? I don't think so because, first of all, I think we're talking about the difference between what I might call cl a closed system, okay. uh -huh. relatively closed system of the simulacrum, yep. the, the virtual reality device, let's say, totally, and a, a radically open system of one nakedly standing before nature, and I mean that metaphorically, maybe uh -huh. uh, <laughs> uh, into the darkness of the woods, into the mystery where uh, creation knows a lightning bolt could hit, uh, totally. rain could suddenly pour down, right. a wild animal could come out of nowhere, something psychologically could suddenly be discovered. Uh, that that is it's just totally uncontrolled. There, there's totally. no control. So doesn't that alone make for some kind of difference in phenomenology? Totally. Yeah. Yep. So I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I mean, that's a, you're preaching to the choir as far as uh, that, all of that goes. I mean, you know, when I think about, you know, some of the framing of modernity, uh, my friend John Bervaki is an integrative cognitive scientist, talks about uh, different modes of knowing, okay? Uh, yes. and, uh, yes. and one mode of knowing is procedural knowing, 
Um, that's, and, and that's basically affords you skill and to achieve through recipe. And when you do it simply, you just develop habits of just, um, and it affords you a way of relating to the world in closed systems where you, you know, uh, the capacity to generate recipe. Um, and we, and, and for much of modernity, actually, that's kind of been the idealized frame. Like when we develop an intervention, it's like, oh, well, that's what we can specify. That's what we can manualize. That's what we can, those are then becomes an observable variable cluster that we can at least say, hey, it's translatable. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, and it, but it's, but, but it's controlled and complicated. Okay. Uh, which is fine, but that's just a domain. Um, yeah. There are other forms of knowing like perspectival, uh, yeah. which by the way, is fundamentally for him about presence. It's essentially the grip your perceptual system has and identifies with the self-world relation, okay? And then whether it feels ingrained in that or not, or feels alienated from that, it's sort of like what you, oh, I really see this um, because I have a perceptive uh, uh, experience of presence and grip, okay? Uh, another is participatory. Participatory knowing is when you drop into a totally novel system and develop a complex adaptive feedback loop in relationship to it. Okay. Um, and that, that is not prescribed in terms of its algorithm. That is the ways in which things bounce back and forth based on the variables that are coming back at you. Okay. Mm -hmm. feedback. Um, feedback. Exactly. Uh, so when, as to me, what I saw a lot of like with manuals, manuals are trying to get procedural knowing because then mm -hmm. that, but actually the art is the presence and participatory intuition in relation to what's going on. And, and it is that intuitive dance that I think that many people and the nature of being a human is it's, it's tracking that we lived in open societies. They got to track the capacity of a system to enter into unknown territory and demonstrate capacity for presence there to generate participatory knowledge. And that is a lot, much more intuitive, trustworthy kind of system. Not to say that you can't rely on procedures, uh, but right. people's felt sense of being are going to be tracking uh, presence and tracking participation. And they will test the recipe. I mean, I see this all the time as like, oh, well, are you just treating me like a goddamn formula? Right. Mm -hmm. the, the test. And if the person is the therapist, then is overcommitted to procedure and can't meet the test of participation in perspective, then boom, you short circuit the whole damn thing. You know, well, that's, and, that's what our, our latest outcome research is saying, too, right? Mm -hmm. People like Walmpold and Norcross, totally. you know, pointing to the relational contextual it's, factors as exactly. the most important. That's the, it's, that's the ground that affords, exactly. It's the ground that affords the safety and the confidence and the hope and the willingness then to turn into the dark and have the capacity to actually stay present in relationship to it. Um, and sure. people are, don't trust uh, just a mechanical complex system. And I think for many good reasons, you know, complicated system, because it doesn't have the intuitive uncertainty and flexibility uh, and to get, so I think that we, um, you know, and this is sort of an overarching shift in sort of the uh, metaphysics of science is much more complex adaptive systemic feedback loop thinking. It's more systems thinking, it's more interactive, it's more open, uh, it's less reductive and isolating, trying to delineate, oh, the world is like a clock, and if we understand its parts, it just unfolds in a particular way, and we need to un untangle the recipe of causation. It's like, no, actually, the world is like a tree. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, it, and it moves back and forth and all sorts of different things and can flourish. And it's responding as an agent in relation in certain regards and that especially in moves when we go into animals and get into people, um, that's a much, much more uh, realistic way of framing. I agree, but I, I would just like to convey a note of empathy for our you know, rationalistic enlightenment mm -hmm. direction coming out of just abject uh, poverty and ignorance. Beautiful, very important point to make. Classical traditions, uh, pestilence, disease, bubonic mm. plagues in the Middle Ages. Totally. And, and, the, and the desperate need to, uh, you know, to, to make this a more uh, sanitized, manageable world. And, and we have come a very long way since, you know, the 1400s, roughly. I mean, Michel Foucault writes about yeah. this beautifully. You yeah. know, the, the Enlightenment turn, the, uh, even the pre-Renaissance, we're already beginning to move toward what Heidegger calls calculative thinking for some very good reasons. The problem is, as Foucault beautifully points out, is we threw the baby out with the bathwater. So what happened to our primal experience of nature, our primal relationship to nature in the cosmos? Uh, it got severely contracted through the emphasis on manipulation and control, prediction and control, et cetera. Um, Beautifully so said. I guess I want to bring both to bear. Totally, 100%. Also, uh, but, but it also what it means is that as we move, and I agree with you, I think psychology and APA is also moving, uh, perhaps not as rapidly as we'd like to see, but it is moving. Uh, I saw that in the latest therapy practice guidelines, more toward a holistic, diversified framework uh, to, to relate to context. Um, but uh, what, what I think we, we have to prepare ourselves for, and here's another place that Ronk anticipated and Nietzsche as well, is for more anxiety. Huh. We're going to have to come to terms with the natural anxiety of living more huh. if huh. we're going to take a more holistic, in-depth perspective uh -huh. toward our uh -huh. humanity and, uh -huh. and toward a wisdom path. It seems oh. to me, because it means opening to places that are less predictable, less manipulable, and um, and, and and less in in some ways safe, if you will. Yeah. You have to have some uncomfortable conversations totally. with each other. Yep. This is happening, you know, as we've talked about in the dialogue movement. Yep. People from different backgrounds. Um, but it's, it certainly needs to happen in psychotherapeutically. And as a culture, uh, as we deal with the, more and more of the complexities of the te technological, technocratic society imposing itself on us. Beautiful. That's a, a lot of richness there. I, I, virtually everything you said there, I can uh, completely concur with. So um, absolutely in relationship to, you know, I'm, if I sound critical of the Enlightenment, it's only because it is my home. <laughs> So sort of a, it's hidden from the, so it's, and it's, an, and it's crucial to honor that. And I really, I, I'm, I try to frame the little part of a movement that I'm on as a vision towards enlightenment 2.0. Um, and essentially it, it, that basically builds off the first enlightenment, which gets us all sorts of 
power and control and insight into aspects of the world, um, but throws out a baby um, that, of terms of our relational dynamics and how to uh, live in the world. In fact, the sort of the theme of this podcast, which I'll share with you, and I think it will resonate, is that um, we're searching for a coherent naturalistic ontology uh, that can revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. Um, Love it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the idea basically is, is that, you know, the scientific enlightenment afforded us tremendous insight in regards, but it didn't quite capture um, the nature of the human in a relationship to each other, our affects, nature, how we would then frame that and inform it in terms of how it goes through this like transformation into the digital and all of that. And instead it handed it certain kinds of things which needed to be really strong and robust. And they basically got a fragmented, chaotic, you know, piecemeal, alienate, potentially alienating um, frame of understanding uh, that, uh, that I think in combination with lots of other factors gives rise to what my friend John Berbeke calls the meaning crisis, argues that we're sort of yeah. facing uh, a, a breakdown in what is shared sense of what is and what is good and how to live our lives, a, a frame of fundamental sort of uh, authentic existential contact uh, with being and knowing how to cultivate purpose in relationship to that, how to home ourselves. Um, and uh, it, maybe a moral and ethics grounded in one's whole body experience. Beautiful. Exactly. Which would be a great way to frame a wisdom orientation. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't imply an absolute truth with a mm -hmm. capital E. Absolutely. So it, it's postmodern to that degree. Right. It's also not stridently postmodern in the sense of, of, of uh, treating every point of view as basically equivalent in some Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Uh, I believe it preserves the sense of sacredness that many of us experience if we experience life with our whole body. 100%. 100%. In fact, that, that actually, I'm on a series called Sacred Naturalism uh, that completely articulates that, the cultivation of the sacred all of which is central in relationship to that process. Um, and uh, yeah, and also in relationship to the framing of the cultural sensibility in a number of my circles, there's an identification of the sensibility as a meta-modern sensibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so and meta-modern sensibility is basically looks at modernity. It, be, it can be framed a lot of ways, but the core of it looks at modernity as a thesis in a particular way, uh, yeah. sees post-modernity as an appropriate critical antithesis that critiques it, but then says, hey, we can get an integrated pluralism. There is absolutely the case that some of the transcendent truths and reasons of modernity overshot. They didn't take social justice and historical context in appropriate con ways. And it and you know afforded just sort of hyper-rational view that isn't realistic. But at the same time, it doesn't, you know, to undercut it into hyper-relativistic knowledge is it's just a critique. That's not a substantive. Uh, statement. So this says, hey, actually, there are ways to grab holds of certain kinds of footing, um, see that people see those kinds of footings from a wide variety of different perspectives. That's an integrated pluralistic sensibility that I think heals some of the modern postmodern divisions that we're going through right now. I really like the meta-conscious, uh, meta-modern perspectives. Mm. It seems to me that, that those are moving in uh, uh, pro-human perspectives, <laughs> pro-human pro directions, I should say. Definitely. Uh, that's my sense, too. On present knowledge, experience. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Now, uh, one of the things I wanted to touch in on is, is your leadership in the field. You're, you're, um, you have a vision for APA. You're involved in it in some training councils and other kinds of elements. And uh, you're a candidate for our, the presidency, uh, which I wish you well in and strongly endorse you for. Um, can you uh, share a little bit about what you hope uh, for psychology? You alluded to some of that, but I think it would really be helpful for us to kind of dive into this vision uh, for what you think psychology might be doing, given all of the shit that's going on in the world. <laughs> yes, well, the way I boil that down is, uh, and, and I believe all my platforms really uh, converge on this, is, is the major crisis of emotionally impoverished relationships in our country. <sighs> Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Emotionally impoverished, emotionally stunted relationships. I see this as certainly one of the key, if not the key psychosocial problems that we face, and that psychology has a great deal to bring to bear to, to the problem. Now, we, we see this because of, I mean, certainly the pandemic of late has uh, exacerbated, has inflamed emotional impoverished relationships that we're already building in the sense of, you know, greater isolation, right. Uh, alienation, loneliness, people, loneliness, uh, I think an excessive reliance on our devices, yeah. many, which who knows what that's going to be leading to in terms of capacity to build social skills, the capacity to develop that inner freedom that mm. we were talking about, which mm -hmm. requires struggle. Often. Yes. It requires totally. being with some pretty tough parts of oneself and others uncomfortableness 100 percent. you have to get exposure to that to ground that freedom you can't just flip a switch you have to develop it that's right and and then we, we of course have the whole problems of uh, many parents being uh, preoccupied by by jobs uh, our culture not supporting i don't believe you know optimal uh child care and mm -hmm. uh time to be present Right. And connected, engaged with children. So child rearing uh -huh. is impinged upon. Uh, we, we have a, a great deal of emotional and physical abuse in our culture, stemming from a number of reasons, some of which we've touched upon. I think people lacking meaning, lacking a sense of awe and the gift of life. Uh -huh. uh, certainly economic, uh, uh -huh. you know, economic, uh, inequality and, and stress to try to maintain uh, the demands and the difficulty doing that absolutely instability yes, right don't have time to to be with each other to cultivate relationships racial issues uh, of uh, course are, are uh -huh. huge uh, as an oppressive burden for many people uh -huh. in cultivating a fuller you know more vital kind of relationships and on, on and on and so uh my, my platform is really uh, designed around helping to shift psychology from a relative secondary priority in the country uh -huh. uh, to, uh, to recognizing this major crisis right. uh, as a top priority. Uh -huh. and, and I would, I would do this by, uh, first of all, uh, fostering the healing dialogues 
Uh, that I've been very involved in. I was a trained moderator for Braver Angels, which is mm. a grassroots citizens movement that yep. started on the eve of the election of Trump mm. uh, because of so much divisiveness that was happening right. at the time. It started by a psychologist, Bill Doherty, from University mm -hmm. of Minnesota, mm -hmm. bringing humanistic and uh, couples counseling and other psychological principles to bear mm. to help to bring self-identified liberals and conservatives together for living room style conversations in a highly structured supportive format that uh, lends itself to the attainment of greater common ground uh, by the end yeah well, and i have witnessed this personally and been uh -huh. very uh -huh. moved by it and uh, research upholds it as well growing research totally. uh, and i have drawn from that work and also a dozen or so years prior to that i was developing what i call the experiential democracy dialogue oh. point of the iraq war because mm. there's a similar kind of divisiveness in the country and i mm. thought look at all the riches we have to bring right society and out, and out of the office uh -huh. you know, right it's be brought out so i i developed that uh framework and uh, that is really focus more on a one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. intimate okay. mm -hmm. meeting between mm -hmm. people of a whole variety of backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, religious, non-religious, mm -hmm. different races, classes, liberal, conservative, right. et cetera. And so uh, in any case, I, I have a whole six-phase model ah, okay. mm -hmm. and I've mm -hmm. been uh, promoting it in webinars, uh, mm. have one coming up at, uh, with Wright Institute, actually. Uh, oh, okay. September, uh -huh. September 11th, strangely. Uh -huh. Interesting. Uh -huh. uh, and so I, a lot of my mission in life right now is to, to give these tools away. I, I wrote the book, The Depolarizing of America. I, yes, I was going to mention that. Good. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. That's where I've summarized a lot of my experiences with this. And it's, it's really a lot about giving psychology away. Right. Uh, I'm attempting to do that. So that's one platform. And I, and I would promote that with uh, the profession. I believe we need a WPA, a Works Progress Administration mm -hmm. style uh, funding. I, let me pause you for just a sec there, because I want to stay this polarization issue is so uh, yeah. central. Let's uh, let's uh, sort of double click on that for a little bit and, and say, sir, I've actually been involved with Michael Muscolo built a Creating common ground is a so I just share. I've been in what's involved what's called intergroup dialogue as a particular process yes, for yeah. this. Um, so uh, to me, this polarization issue, um, in the absence of meaning, I think what's essentially happened is our our politics now almost taking the place of our religion, um, yeah. and the confusion about our identities is such that people now are investing them. Uh, and the nature of the structural systems that are involved, like social media, the nature of the way our current system is defined by the two, two parties in a particular way, uh, some of the changes that have taken place over the last 20 years and the political arrangements, we really have poured a structural system uh, for sort of, nobody designed it this way exactly, but basically to emphasize microphones on the hyper extremes uh, that, that really then, then flood our consciousness and essentially force individuals, even though the majority of people are sort of in the center or more moderate in their general orientation, to get salient leaders that are uh, really defined against one another and then framed in relationship to a win-lose um, 
team, almost warfare, info warfare kind of structure. Um, and it, mm -hmm. I, I just think it's really important for people to understand uh, at least uh, that the potential destructive nature of this and the levels that it's reached um, are, you know, and people get it, I think, in terms of the way they live, but fundamentally, we're basically participating, I think, in a maladaptive, you know, feedback loop of vicious cycles across wide variety of different domains. Um, and the, you know, the psychotherapeutic thing is, hey, if you're involved in a vicious, nasty cycle, just become aware and accept that you're sort of in it and also stop. <laughs> Stop yeah. digging, you know, it's like, do what you can to try to get out of, and that's why I actually really like identifying meta-modern, and, and I'll basically say, listen, I, I've always been on the left side of the political spectrum, um, but um, the energy to advocate for left and diminish right is basically, to me, in a hyper-polarized state, essentially adding to sickness in relation, um, and so I'm definitely somebody who really just, I just, so I just really just wanted to echo the work and the effort and the vision and the, the wisdom from psychology you potentially bring to bear on this is really central and crucial. And I think it's a very, very important uh, point. So I just want to thank you for your efforts and your leadership uh, and your vision in that regard, because you know it's one of the things that I think is contributing or, or a product of the meaning crisis. And um, it's to turn that around to create a constructive dialogue around leadership and where we might be headed in the future is really crucial to get the institutions back in a functional way and to yes. get our hearts back in a relational world in a way that is uh, much, much healthier. So that's my little spiel on that, oh, but just thank you. Beautiful, and, and it applies to institutions. It doesn't only apply to just everyday citizens. I think you can apply the, this model to the work setting and where people have these kinds of tensions. Uh, certainly in classrooms, uh, the educational setting, and, and at the legislative, diplomatic settings as well. Uh -huh. Yes, we as psychologists have so much to bring in terms of dealing with otherness, right? I mean, what are, what are we particularly good at generally? Uh -huh. Well, especially <laughs> nice psychotherapists, but also people in applied psychology, we're, we're good at being able to be present to others, active listening, uh, uh, creating a safe working space where people can begin to, as you say, metabolize uh, their, their terrors, their fears of otherness, because that's a, a lot of where I believe these polarizations come out of. It's totally agree. some great terror of an anxiety about not mattering about insignificance, uh, ultimately perhaps a kind of death anxiety uh -huh. or in the in the universe. Yep. Uh, and of course, these take major interventions over the long run, but in the shorter run, there's a lot we can bring in helping people to develop a more mindful, a more present approach to uh, their fears of the other. One of the ways I do this in the experiential democracy dialogue is yeah, before anyone even jumps in mm -hmm. with, with discussion of an issue, I invite them to envision what it might be like to encounter this other person mm -hmm. with the other Perfect. point of view. Mm -hmm. They've already chosen other points, or they've already chosen a charged issue. Uh, so what it might be like to just sit with them? What, what kind of feelings, sensations, images come up for you? And, and can you more or less observe those 
without fixating on any particular one, but just, right. just notice what comes up for you. And then see if you can clear a space for the human being that's before you. Beautiful. As opposed to the label or the stereotype or your knee-jerk reaction to that person, what they represent. Can you see a person with a personal story who may be wounded, who has a family, who has a dad and a mom, you know, friends, vulnerable, etc. And this is, I found, many people have found that this is a, a, a very powerful priming. Beautiful. For moving toward yep. engaging. And then I have people discuss where they came from. Talk to your partner about what it was like to grow up in your family system. And how is the other, whoever the other is in that conversation, treated by your family yeah. system? So you're putting it out on the table. Yeah. And, and then, uh, uh, then begin discussing your stance. Nice. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, having the partner reflect back what they heard and the original partner be able to correct that. And then going into um, what I call it, what Braver Angels calls a stereotypes exercise, hmm. where people are actually, first of all, they're identifying the stereotypes of them toward themselves by people critical of them. Ah, good. Uh -huh. Let their partner right. clearly know the kind of pain that they've right. experienced in those stereotypes. Yep. You know, whatever, whatever it is. And they can be pretty brutal, as you know, both. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the speaking partner uh, identifies the false and misleading aspects of those stereotypes. So they get to fill out more of the human picture. Right. But they are they're about. And then they identify the nuggets of truth to mm -hmm. the stereotype. Nice. Mm -hmm. Which is a way again of humanizing the conversation of making oneself more vulnerable, more accessible to the other. It's rounding out the picture. Totally. And then they go into a phase where they can ask a question of each other. Mm -hmm. All of this, by the way, is predicated on ground rules. You, you yep. can't, you, you really got to try to come from a place of curiosity and mm -hmm. respect. Mm -hmm. If only it's respect for the person being willing to engage with you. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But curiosity, curiosity as opposed to presumption or certainly accusation, belittlement. So your question needs to, to come from that, uh, an open question, honest curiosity, genuine interest in how, how is it that you see it this way? Totally. And then the final phase of discovery results, what did you both learn about mm -hmm. each other, about mm -hmm. oneself? Uh, and uh, is there, was there any room for common ground, mm. maybe even actionable common ground. Where do you uh -huh. go from here? Uh. Well, clearly these conversations can continue, they can deepen, but my feeling is psychology and psychologists are in a prime position to really move these across the country, at least make them available. Right. I'm not talking about some bureaucratic imposition, uh -huh. but funding uh -huh. for so many, for many of us to be able to spread this out in the country and make it available at a number of these levels and, and places. Totally. I would also call for what I call a relational, a relational equity task force. Okay. Mm -hmm. To identify how we can uh, bring 
more emotionally reparative relationships, mm. more quality, in-depth, mm. emotionally mm. reparative relationships mm-hmm. all across the board in the country, but in particular in underserved and minoritized communities. Right. That's so severely lacking. And we, we try our best in public mental health, uh-huh. but uh-huh. I think many of us know and have benefited from, we've been fortunate to benefit from really substantive and often, frankly, longer term relationships with with healers that can help turn our lives around. Right. And I think this is so critical in in addressing everything from the the kinds of uh, physical abuse and emotional abuse and crime rates that we see, Uh racism, Mm -hmm. extremism that's Mm -hmm. rampant, not to mention the so-called pathologies, depression, anxiety. Addiction, right. totally, uh, which are, which are, are rampant. So yeah, so uh, bringing our wisdom to bear in uh, in making more available longer term emotionally reparative relationships Love in that. the country. Uh, then I would I was also I would also call the leaders of the specialties of the APA. Uh at a council session Uh to come together and talk about how their specialty can best address the psychosocial crises that we face. Uh We collate that information Uh and we disseminate it to our profession and to the public. Beautiful. Maybe a paper comes out of it. Right, right. And then finally, I, I call for a federal office, uh-huh. a federal office of psychological consultants uh-huh. to address 24-7 and concentrate on 24-7 the psychosocial crises of our times, uh-huh. which again, often relate to emotionally impoverished relationships right? Um, and can amplify amplify and uh, expand the voice, the advocacy voice of APA, which Beautiful. is doing a terrific job. It is, uh-huh. it is moving the, the ball forward. Uh-huh. But, but there's nothing like, for example, the AMA has the Surgeon General. Uh-huh. It, ha- it often has uh-huh. medical folks at the head of SAMHSA, for example. Right, right. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, NIH, etc. What uh-huh. do we have in the psychosocial realm? Uh-huh. At the head, I'm talking about the lead. Right, right. Position of voice. Experts uh-huh. In psychosocial mediation, both at mental health level and organization level. Beautiful. Uh-huh. So, so that's that's a big plan. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, I love that plan. <laughs> so it sparked a couple of things in me. Um, so in terms of like so bringing sort of knowledge, you know, how do we bring our knowledge, the way you laid out sort of like, how do people get trapped? How do they get polarized? How do they get dysfunctional? I love that. Um, you know, if I were to if sort of, if I were consulting, some of the things that I would bring is that one thing I'd bring is this idea of justification systems. Okay. So our, our propositional knowledge structure is structurally functionally organized to justify. And if we're feeling defensive, we get narrowly possessive 
in a sort of cognitive dissonance sort of way that our justification, we're justified and anybody that's against us then is a threat. And then that creates fear. And then we want to justify why we're all right. And those guys are losers, you know, and that's a, that's the default position when we're agitated. Um, and to help people when you get stuck into a system of justification, a position, and then immediately polarize somebody else, you'll then activate exactly the opposite place and both systems of justification will drive themselves in a particular. And that's the issue is to become metacognitively aware of that and then cultivate the processes that sort of prevent the unnecessary destruction of the default into, hey, my job justified, you're not, and you're a bastard and blah, 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 right? Uh, yeah, this this is what I call the vicious cycle of polarization. Exactly. And, and uh, actually, some of the latest research with ex-members of extremist groups, both religious mm -hmm. and cultural, uh, the RAND Corporation did one recently, mm -hmm. indicates that the, these ex-members home in on, uh, on one major factor, and that is lack of exposure to diversity. Mm. both growing up mm -hmm. in terms of diversity of ideas, mm -hmm. diversity of people, yep, and certainly within their sort of tribal right. silo, right? And, and, and so one of the, the issues or the themes that uh, was associated with their breaking out of, of mm -hmm. these groups was being exposed to, to an other. Right. And finding out that they're not the demons that they were pumped up to be by their mm. family or cultural systems or their charismatic, quote unquote, leaders. Totally. And, and in their fears, their fe the fears which have driven them to identify with these extreme folks as well. Right. They, they put those, some of the, a lot of those fears at rest, fear of insignificance, of not mattering. They see that this other you know, does relate to them, maybe in a in a decent way or caring way. They have their own vulnerabilities, their own humanity. So again, it points back to the need right. to have these uncomfortable, right. but yep. often very rewarding conversations across the, across the, the, the silos, across the lines. Beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah so that's a, that's a wonderful articulation of, the, of that dynamic. Well, I love the sorry. vicious cycle. Go ahead. One, one other quick thing is the other thing I wanted to echo with what you were saying is what they also said was that uh, the people being critical of them in a very didactic and uh, kind of, you know, condescending mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or parentified way just drives them that much more. Totally. To their, that, that system. Dink. They're extreme. <laughs> Sit yeah. down, you know, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that came to mind, I tell the story because I think it speaks to sort of what I hope we evolve to. And it speaks exactly, I think, to the entire message uh, that grounds your speaking of uh, emotionally impoverished relationships. And that is, uh, I tell how I developed this thing called the influence matrix, it's actually the fourth key idea. And you mm -hmm. talk and what it does is it maps the human relationship system. Uh, and it says, hey, we track, we humans intuitively create self-other matrices and we track the processes by which that self-other dynamic unfolds uh, on dimensions of power, on love and on freedom. Um, initially, I called it the influence matrix because I was coming from an evolutionary psych view and it was basically, hey, the underlying motive is to you know, have the capacity to influence others in accordance with your interests, okay? 
which is valid, uh, but it's framed initially as a very instrumental framing. You know, it's like, hey, I can move you around. Okay. And in the world of evolution, there's certainly some truth to that. If you can move them around, that's good. If you can get food, that's good. Um, but it's definitely, if we do a from thing, it's definitely the doing <laughs> mode at one level. Um, and it speaks to sort of our sort of our economic and educational structure. What's the outcomes? What's the product? What's the money? You know, that kind of thing. Over the time, as I really track people's motive as a clinician, okay, this thing evolves from the social influence as sort of the key into what I call relational value, all right? So relational, because what I saw many people, A, yes, if you had no interest and no influence and no value, or at least you either perceived that or really had that, you felt like shit and you came in lonely, alienated, and, and you know, uh, that's a brutal thing if you're an eight-year-old kid getting rejected, and then you carry that, that's career. But many individuals had influence, okay, but did not feel known and valued at all. You know, and they went through because they felt valued in relationship to just what they could do because they put on a persona. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. hey, I can do this, but people don't know me. If they really knew me, okay, uh, they would then maybe reject me. So I have to fake it. And then that creates a very empty heart and a fear that you'd be discovered as the imposter syndrome. Okay? Right. Right. Um, and so ultimately, over time, it basically is like what the heart seeks is not just social influence, although that's important. That's the instrumental aspect. It, it, it seeks the being aspect of being known and valued um, for, for what it is and being held with honor and respect and dignity for its core. And if you hold that in honor, and respect and dignity, that feeds the heart in relation. And it actually then also affords lots of flexibility on what we believe and what we're doing. Um, so getting that message out that in fact that the, the calories for the heart is to be known and valued by important others that's really and of course many people have said that but ultimately trying to really if I look out across the educational structure and you know what would it be great to have a you know surgeon general of psychology being actually the core social motivation is being known and valued and that should be fused and if you're just instrumentally relating to people you know People resent the hell out of that, you know, basically in many ways. They feel manipulated, they feel alienated. And that's our capitalist structure really right. affords a huge amount of this at the level of instrument without at the level of relation. And so that would be another message that I would encourage. And of course, that's all embedded in all of what you're saying, but we, you could just imagine what it would be to have, you know, councils together and then to be able to release foundational assertions about the human condition and what does it mean and what is it the famine, the relational famine that we're going through and why it's just a, I just I think you're offering just beautiful ideas in relation. Yeah, to, you know, beautifully put. Uh, yeah. yeah. What if, what if we could bring a core of, of, uh, you know, therapeutically attuned people out to communities, to, to classrooms, mm. to, uh, again, uh, work right. site, uh, legislative settings, et cetera. Totally. To, to offer these kinds of models yep. to people. You know, some are gonna back away and think it is too bureaucratic, whatever, the, the government imposing itself. But I think, like you say, a lot of people hunger for this. And once they see it, they recognize the, the gold that's in it. Whereas our system, as you say, our whole socioeconomic system is so predicated on the contrasting in so many ways. And that's, that's a big, frustration and challenge, you know, the, the emphasis on speed, instant results, and appearance and packaging is so much of our 
system, we get rewarded for those things. No, it's, it's an instrumental, right, right. The contingencies are structured to push those levers, um, but we have to figure out, in my estimation, if we're going to evolve, we can already see the impact of that. If we had authorities that afforded the capacity to extract and organize and consolidate the knowledge that psychology has, psychology, the science is pretty damn clear on this, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I so often, even my students will do the same, will be like, um, they'll be talking, they'll be like, oh, well, I'm more humanistic. I really like the relationship. I was like, that's science, you know. <laughs> It's the science of the field, it's it's what, you know, right. I know, but it's, we split these things. You just hear it in the categories of, oh, well, and you see sort of the prediction and control and technologies being science. And then this, you know, mushy humanistic stuff over here. And the artists kind of like, it. it's like, no folks, like that's, that's the architecture that we actually need to overcome and realize that the nature of our embodied behavioral being, and I'll use the word behavioral to pull in the science, the nature of embodied behavioral beingness um, fundamentally is really about this. We have to have the being and becoming mode fused in our soul or else it's going to feel really empty. And, and I, I'm really anxious to try to get that message out there. And that's why, you know, if, you, if, we, can, if we can do that, that would be great. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, let's, let's, Try our best. Uh, remember that book by Amadeo Giorgi quite a few yeah. years ago? Psychology yes. and Human Science. Mm. Yes. Well, he focused on phenomenology in particular, right. but I think that can be seen more broadly within the holistic framework that we're suggesting. Totally. totally. In fact, actually, my only, right, I remember that book, uh, my only critique is actually we need human psychology, because actually the reason human, we need to add the human, it's not redundant, is because behavior and mental process, at least from my vantage point, properly defined is actually just at the animal mental level. And then there's the human, and that's where the core of the field is starting to organize, but that splits off into natural science. And human psychology jumps into philosophy, into the social inquiry, into the psychotherapeutic elements, um, and that let's embrace that. And, and, and that's the intersection of all that. And that's really at the root, from my vantage point, it sits right at the heart of the meaning in mental health crisis, this issue of human psychology and cognitive right. science and what it is and the, the science and therapeutic knowledge that we've cultivated and then how to, in fact, I gave up my license this year because I gave, my, I gave it up because I wanted to really shift, although I love psychotherapy, um, I really see this as a sociocultural level analysis and, and that is the the and really the wisdom of the therapy room that we figured out you know which of course is super appropriate and I've trained people and I want psychological doctors and healers to be professionals in context it's actually how do we extract the wisdom of the therapy room and put it into families and put it into societies and schools and communities and bring this real uh, the lessons of authentic relationality and openness and freedom for emotional processing and and that kind of way of being in the world to uh, the, the life's world, life quests that we are all on uh, across all the various facets of, of being. So. Yes. What if we put an emphasis, President Biden or Vice <laughs> President Harris, an equal or an emphasis on, uh, you know, psychosocial care and the emotional infrastructure as much as we're putting on the physical infrastructure of the country. What if we devoted as much funding uh, to um, all, you know, the, 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 all the riches of what our specialties in psychology can bring 
to from organizational health to mental health as as we do to uh, funding you know many medical right neurological yep. research projects from the NIH or totally. the NIH yep. for example can we put an equal priority at least an equal priority on something that is literally killing us in this country as much certainly as the medical and physical aspects 100% Hundred percent, and in fact, yeah, yeah, I love that. And in fact, that's the you know we look out. We've achieved a huge amount of control uh, uh, over the physical, technological world. Uh, we've achieved a huge amount of control over the biomedical world, and those things then got institutionalized as the control. And then this whole issue of psychosocial and its relationship to living is enormously ambiguous. Um, and and to me, Enlightenment 2.0 will afford the philosophical, scientific clarity of its place. And then afford that in relationship to the institutional leaderships and the magistrate to make it real and make it on its own. So you don't stick it under medicine. <laughs> That's not, I mean, if you force it under medicine, you are going to corrupt the entire concept. It's not about broken biology that you are addressing here. It's about the patterns of being in the world in relationship to each other. Um, and that's a, just a different level of analysis. Yeah. Um, and we need to figure out a way to get people clear. And I think this is when I do critique Enlightenment 1.0, it didn't have a framework. It didn't have a coherent framework that afforded us the psychological level down into animals and then up into humans and in the social level and afford us a clarity, a metaphysical ontological clarity of that domain um, with, with integrity. And so we can speak about it um, and, then, and then tell people, yeah, no, there's real issues of being known in value. Okay, Your experience as a five-year-old you have an attachment system, it's freaking out, you're panicking in a particular way, you get mirrored by another that you trust, and all of a sudden, the that's a psychological phenomenon that creates a completely different structure of your organism down into your cells over time, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and that, that, right, and it's not to reduce it to the brain, that's not it's just not, oh, your brain then was fired, no, actually, it was the whole dynamic system, your brain got rewired as a function of being in the holistic system, and we have to have a holistic view uh, that can go down into parts as necessary, but go up into, well, where are you in the societal system? And where are we in the cosmos for love of God? You know, all of that needs to, uh, we need coherence around that uh, we're desperately lacking. Uh, but if we get it, then people, I think, will understand and then we'll see the logic of it in a particular kind of way. And that would, that would unlock a lot of, you know, pent up potential for us to move in this direction. Yeah, and, and I, I like what you suggest about rebuilding our, our ethical approach as well. I mean, we're regrounding an so, ethics. Uh, and, and it seems to me that a, a more humanistic ethics would naturally emerge when people feel more fulfilled in their self and other relating. And when they feel more at home in the universe, if you yes, will. Totally, 100%. I love that framing. How many people, you know, feel like they, they don't belong in existence uh, from the get-go in terms of the uh -huh. message they've got? Totally. So, and, and how can that affect somebody's trajectory in, in life? So, yeah, I mean, all these things go together. They clearly impact things like pollution and climate change as well, environment. Right. No.
Oh, wait, right. right. And that just speaks to a whole other systemic level of need of, aware, uh, of awareness and a fundamental requirement of shift in terms of the rules that we are society is playing by if it's going to maintain itself and, and foster flourishing as opposed to kind of slings and arrows and potentially real genuine degradation, which is what I kind of feel in the next decade or two is a really important sort of kairos or, as a, or the core of the moment here, what we do here in these times and how we respond to the crises um, has enormous amount of, at least that's my felt sense, it's an enormous amount of impact of if enough of us pull together and enough of us are able to honor the developments of the past, recognize what needs to be changed, come together, make it with integrity, honesty, humility, but, but oriented towards the core values uh, across a wide variety, then gosh, that potential is great. And if we don't, then it feels kind of scary. <laughs> totally agree. We need a radical paradigm shift and psychology has a hell of a lot to contribute to that. Mm. And we need to do it now. Beautiful, right. Radical paradigm shift now with, with yes. humility and, and reflection, but, but at the same time, yes, it yes, I, I don't like, it's that dialectic of, of, of that. So as we, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, the overview. Where are you feeling in terms of, as you look out at the kind of the horizon of, of the future in terms of where we are, uh, do you wake up with optimism? Do you wake up with pessimism? Is it a mix? Are there certain things you know, you're... I, I very much echo Viktor Frankl in being a tragic optimist. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I do tend to be optimistic. Good to see your existential core. That's a beautiful... <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yes, I, I, I tend to be optimistic uh, in, in part because... I, I love life and I mm. feel that as long as I have a breath in life, there's possibility, there's hope. Uh, and there are others such as yourself who, you know, see, see these problems and see needed directions. Um, you know, but then some of my more pessimistic friends or colleagues uh, do have sobering messages about where we are right now. And uh, so I, I waver between that and the other. Uh -huh. but, um, but basically, let's put it this way. I, I feel optimistic to the extent that, that I have breath and energy. And I feel very blessed right. at 65 to still have a good right. deal of breath and energy. To, to do every damn thing I can to promote this, this new possibility, this reemergence right. of, of our society, of our world. And, and so that's where my, my main optimism is. Great. It's, it's doing it. <laughs> right, right, right. Embodying. I love that because that's, uh, that's certainly uh, the amount of parallels and synchronicities are, are uh, affirming for me. Uh, so yeah, I certainly have the fear and, and can feel, and if I shift into pessimism and look out across, um, you know, what feels, at times I learned, I'm a flea on a Titanic. That's my pessimistic <laughs> narrative. It's like, oh, you know, um, and then at the same time, it's like, well, you know, 
maybe a bunch of us fleas can get together and turn that wheel and all of a sudden miss the thing and the whole thing would go build a cruise ship or whatever, you know? Um, and so, and, and at times I certainly feel both of those uh, strongly. And at the same time, in terms of my own little local garden, the, I have such gratitude for my health and my position and privilege and the fact that I get to connect with folks, uh, brilliant visionary folks who um, are also passionate. There really is one-on-one, -on -one, there's so much good in this world as far as I, every, I mean, everybody I connect with, you know, um, I really believe it's another message. I, uh, there's a good book, Humanity, um, that came out uh, that basically really says, wait a minute, we're fundamentally pro-social. I mean, you know, it's the right way to characterize us is, is this caring uh, and wanting to give as long as the dynamics of fear uh, and tribalism, you know, are attended to in a particular way. So we certainly have uh, tribal fear potential. And then when we do that, we can become pretty evil and brutal, clearly. But our default, as long as we're safe, is love of the other. Uh, and, and that to me is something to be, I believe that at least, and I, I think there's a lot of good reason to believe that, that the, it's the defense. If we can, you know, it's part of the message that I hope we're able to convey uh, going forth. And, and so uh, anyway, bottom line is, yes, I, I get up, I get energized. As long as there's breath in me, uh, it makes good. I feel super fortunate to be um, part of that system and connecting with folks like you that are, you know, really leading the charge on these kinds of things. I think you've done a wonderful so job. So what can we do to make this happen, Greg? Uh, well, that's, you know, we're doing, I know we're we're doing. doing it. I mean, listen, I, as I tell folks, I, you know, my talents are with theory. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like real, I, you know, I have a special talent with theory. I can see big picture and I can create a coherent picture. I am sort of the anti-marketer. I'm, I'm clueless about music and marketing. Unfortunately, I'm basically uh, learning disabled on both of those accounts. Uh, <laughs> and I need other folks that have those talents. And, and so it's really fundamentally, it's getting folks that have various threads in this weave that we can weave together and create a tapestry uh, based on all of our uh, capacities. And that's I what I feel is the tip that's happening, uh, how it's going to happen and at what extent and what's the development. I have some notions, but it's really an unbelievably creative emergent process. Well, I, I think we, we are weaving the, the web, if you will, yeah. weaving the tapestry. Yes, I think we're weaving the tapestry. So. So. All right. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for uh, coming, for all your efforts, for your leadership, uh, for your vision and sharing that with the uh, with our listeners. I really in, enjoyed getting it. And it does make me feel hopeful uh, that you're out there in the world doing your thing. Well, I feel very much likewise. Greg. So this, okay. this has been terrific. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. And thanks for sharing. Okay.